Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. There is a fanciful tale, it's not true, but it's interesting, about a woman, she really did live, her name was Julian of Norwich. In the 1300s, she was an anchoress of the Roman Catholic Church, and anchoress was someone who locked themselves away in a single room, never to see anyone else so they could devote themselves to prayer and meditation. Not recommended and not commanded in Scripture, but that was Julian of Norwich, and in there she meditated, prayed, and wrote. Now, the story that she tells is that when she was deathly ill one day, it crossed her mind, why? Did God even let there be sin in the first place? Why not stop it in the garden and prevent all of the woes that we now face? And while she was troubled with this thought, she says that Jesus appeared to her and said to her, it was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. Now, if we can discard the husk, I don't believe Jesus appeared to her and told her that, not because he can't, but because she also saw Mary exalted in the heavens. So it was a very Roman Catholic kind of a vision here. However, if we can discard the husk of the story, there is something right and significant in what is said there. It's a line that's now treasured by many people. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That's true. Even though Jesus didn't say that to Julian, that is true. That line is asserting what we find at the end of our scriptures in the book of John's Revelation, when a loud voice booms upon a renewed earth and says, Behold, this is how the story ends, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All will be well. And death shall be no more. All will be well. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. All manner of things shall be well. It's no wonder that Jesus, with this broader perspective of life, told his disciples and others over and over, don't be afraid, (laughs) because you and I are very much still like the disciples in that storm-tossed boat, cast around by the tumults of life, by the trials that you're experiencing now, afraid that we will perish, that all will not be well, but Jesus, knowing that he can and will still the storms with a single word, (laughs) says to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? We look at our many trials and say, isn't it obvious? No, it's not obvious. We don't have to be. Jesus understood that all will be well. All will be well. All manner of thing will be well. And we're not soothing ourselves with an empty hope here. We're not saying peace, peace when there is no peace. This isn't Elkanah. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Some cliche that we throw out, an opiate of the masses, some way to just calm ourselves in the face of the horrors of this life. That's not what this is. The reason we have confidence that all really will turn out well in the end 
is because there is a God, really a God of judgment, who exists, who controls all things, knows all things, and He has committed Himself to bringing about a perfectly good ending. He is Himself a righteous judge, and will not the judge of all the earth do right? He will, and you'll see it with your own eyes. All will be well. He will rectify every wrong that's happening on His earth now. This world will not correct itself. And those who believe that a Darwinian evolutionary view of this world, if they think that's sufficient to explain why we are here in this universe, those who hold to that may have some kind of hope or desire that things will turn out right, that wrongs will be righted, but it's only a guess. Because everything's an accident, so it's only a guess. Things could just as easily, or I would say more easily, turn out not well. But you and I don't hold that view. For us, there is one God in control of all that happens who has committed himself as the judge of all the earth to rectify all wrongs so all shall be well. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. That is our hope. It's a solid hope built upon God himself. And that was Hannah's hope as well here in 1 Samuel. She had been, as we saw in chapter 1, so long tormented by Penina, who mocked her because Hannah was barren and could not have children. And Hannah cried out desperately to God, and God opened her womb, and she had Samuel. God delivered her, and in delivering her, judged Penina. And that leads Hannah to now pray one of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture. It forms the basis of Mary's Magnificat. <laughs> And there are echoes of it at the end of 2 Samuel and David's great prayer there. And this prayer we're encountering today, focused upon the fact that all will end well because the judge of all the earth will right all wrongs, this prayer has formed the basis of many prayers, millions of prayers, and of many hopes ever since. So let's look at Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel chapter 2, the first 11 verses. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. 
He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This prayer took place in history, a blip on the broad radar of real history. There was Hannah, that's why you see it bracketed by this narrative, by this story, the first verse there, and Hannah prayed and said, she's in Shiloh, partaking of the annual pilgrimage. She goes with her family to worship the Lord. This time, though, she's brought her son Samuel because she had made a vow that if God gave her a son, she would give the son to the Lord. And so she's presenting Samuel to stay at Shiloh with Eli and his household, the priests, and to help facilitate worship there. And she's dedicated Samuel's whole life to the Lord, as we've seen. That really happened. And then at the end of this prayer, we find a conclusion in verse 11. Then Elkanah, presumably with his whole family, including Hannah, but minus Samuel, went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest, which sets us up for the rest of the stories we'll be seeing in this early part of 1 Samuel. You see, Hannah's prayer is a part of real history, her history, but it is recorded in Scripture for you and for me. Because the things that Hannah will say in this prayer, specifically, most specifically, that God will judge the ends of the earth. You and I need to know. You and I need to believe. You and I need to pray these very things. And so we have them before us in Scripture. We have to know and to know truly and to live according to the knowledge of knowing that God is judge and God really will judge the ends of the earth, every part. It can't be escaped by any mortal, any human, anywhere through all time. And because God will do that, you need to know that if you are in Christ, all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. So we are going to be looking at the judgment of God today, or maybe to put it more accurately, the way we will look at this text is first by looking at the God of judgment which is how Hannah also begins, and then by looking at the judgment of God. So look with me first at the God of judgment, because after all, this is a prayer that is a praise. She's not, no longer requesting something from God as before. She's praising in response to what God has done and will do. So look at verses 1 through 3 again. Here is the God of judgment upon whom Hannah has set her gaze. My heart exalts in the Lord, she says. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. 
Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The things that Hannah is doing in this first verse, we shall call what? Emotional acts. Of course, we know that Hannah is not afraid of expressing strong emotion. And we saw in chapter 1 that when she prayed in the presence of Eli before she had conceived, she prayed with such emotion that Eli supposed that she was intoxicated. Now she's come to the same place, but not the same place as we've seen. She has a child, and she is still full of emotion. But it's exactly the reverse. I mean, see what she does here. She exalts. And we don't often use that word. We don't say, oh, look, he's exalting. But to exalt, it has this idea of praise, but an excited kind of praise. You don't exalt calmly on an easy chair, but you exalt like this. Her heart exalts in the Lord, and then at the end of verse 1, she rejoices in his salvation. Rejoices. So there is emotion here in Hannah. And what we are really seeing in Hannah in this prayer and this story is the same thing we are going to see in King David in the rest of 1 Samuel. It is a kind of model. David was a man after God's own heart. Hannah also was a woman after God's own heart. And what do we find in them? I'll tell you what we do not find. Lukewarmness. Hannah may be hot. She may be cold. In chapter 1, she's cold. She's miserable. In chapter 2, she's hot and exulting, but she's not calm and placid. And that does demonstrate for us, what does Yahweh want in his people? And I understand that personality differs from personality and glory, and some of us are not given to great exultations outwardly expressed. It doesn't matter. But what you don't want in your life as a follower of Yahweh is lukewarmness or indifference. It's in some sense what God hates the most. <laughs> he wants there to be. That's why he says to the Laodiceans in the New Testament in Revelation, would that you were either cold or hot. <laughs> and that's very much Hannah here. God's intention is not to eliminate your emotions, to make you a stoic who can take suffering without moving without feeling it. That's not God's goal in your life. God's goal is for suffering to come in your life and you feel it deeply and he delivers you and you feel that deeply and express that according to your own personality. But no lukewarmness, certainly. She exults. This is a prayer of exulting and of emotion. And notice that the exulting that's happening is ultimately directed at the Lord. My heart exults in the Lord. That's where her focus is. It is in the Lord. But more specifically, she's exulting in the Lord not as a generic idea. It's the Lord, Yahweh, her covenant God. And specifically, she understands as she's exulting that He is a God of judgment. And that is what is causing in her the exulting of her heart and the rejoicing. She describes that, of course, as your salvation. But it's your salvation because he judged Penina. And that's why she says her mouth will deride her enemies, which is maybe surprising to us, a bit like Psalm 139 that we just saw. What do you do with a psalm like that? Speaking of God's enemies so fervently and strongly. God is a God of judgment. It is a good thing. The second line here, my horn is exalted in the Lord, 
has to do with God's judgment as well. And the picture here is most likely of an animal that has horns on his head. And they use their horns for battle. So the animals are battling each other. And the one who's defeated drops his head. His horn falls. But the one who wins is triumphant. His horn is lifted up. And she says, that's how I feel right now. Penina was battering me and battering me and battering me. And God intervened and delivered me. And now I am triumphant. Not just over my enemies, but really over God's enemies. Over those who take no knowledge of God to heart. Now this deriding of her enemies, it doesn't contradict our call to love our enemies. But at the same time that we love our enemies, it is not wrong for us to have a sense of the rightness of God's judgment. We prefer, just as God does, that the wicked would repent and believe and be saved because that's how God treated us. <laughs> We're so grateful for his patience toward us. So that's our preference. But for those who do not repent, for those who persist with a hard heart against God, against his commands, against his people, Hannah, as a model, exults in that kind of judgment too. She's not embarrassed by it. She is glad that God is the judge of the righteous and the wicked. So really here, Hannah is, is rejoicing in God's salvation. I rejoice in your salvation, but it is a salvation through judgment. That's the theme all the way throughout this prayer. Because when God judges his enemies, primarily the spiritual ones, Satan, demons, but also human. When God judges his enemies, in doing that, he delivers his people who are always oppressed by his enemies. So that's why the negative judgment of punishing the wicked involves a salvation of the righteous. Because when you take away the Penina who's mocking Hannah, now Hannah is not mocked. <laughs> That's the idea. And in both cases, it is judgment. It is God's judgment. Paul actually repeats the same sense in the New Testament. Speaking of future judgment, he tells the Thessalonians, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So when Hannah thinks about God's ultimate justice, God as judge who will bring about lifting up the lowly and bringing down the wicked who are proud. She responds to that, not apologetically, but with great emotion. She is glad that this is the sword of God she worships. I hope that you as well are glad that this is the sword of God you worship. I understand that a doctrine like hell is a difficult doctrine. But it is entirely right. For God to have decided that there would be an eternal hell as a punishment for treason and a refusal to repent and accept the salvation that Christ offers, we don't have to be embarrassed of that. It is right. It is right on God's part. She is exulting in God's judgments. And that's why she bursts out in verse 2. She's been talking about what God is. She's exulting in God for his salvation. Then verse 2 is just a focus on God. It's almost at first seems unrelated, but it's because she's praising God. Verse 2, there's none holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. God's holiness, this God of judgment, His holiness is His uniqueness. It's that He's different. 
different from our sin, different from the non-gods that people serve as if they were God. He's different. He's on a different level. And so she immediately praises him because when she was suffering in chapter 1, where was Baal? The God who is worshipped by Philistines, by others. Where was Dagon? Where were the gods of the Philistines? Where were the other so-called gods of the land? Did they help her? No. Where was Ashtoreth? Did she help Hannah in her time of need? No. The simple reason that Baal and Ashtoreth did not help Hannah at all was because they don't exist. <laughs> and that is her point in verse 2 is, you know, to enter the competition of which God is the best, step number one, you have to exist. And so she is saying, they don't even exist. There's none holy like you because there's none even besides you. There's no other actual God. You're the only God who hears prayer and answers because you exist. And so she praises him and says, there's no rock like our God. Now we shouldn't feel bad, although we don't have people worshiping gods in our culture and context right now in the same way that they did then. But we shouldn't feel bad to push aside some of those cliches that are used in our somewhat post-Christian culture to try to offer comfort when life becomes difficult. When someone comes with no reference of God in their mind at all and says, hey, everything will be okay. That doesn't even exist. How do, how do you know everything will be okay? Maybe it won't be okay. It's just a cliche. We're using instead of God, the rock. And that is not a rock. That will not help you. That is Elkanah's attempt at comfort. That is not a comfort. They say that in stages of grief, most people first turn to denial. Maybe that is true. But even denial, if you're facing hardship in life and you try to just avoid it, just deny it, it can't be true, that's not a rock. That's not a long-term solution to your troubles. There's only one rock to turn to when life is difficult. It's the rock to whom Hannah turned. He's the God who exists. There's no rock like him. He is the rock whose work is perfect and all his ways are justice. Now this brings us to, in Hannah's prayer, two couplets that together form, I think, really the center of the entire prayer. If you understand these two couplets, you understand the whole prayer. And the first of those couplets we saw at the end of verse 3 the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. This God of judgment is what we call omniscient. It means He knows everything, that nothing is hidden from Him. And that is necessary if He is to effectively judge, because of course, we live in a world of corrupt men and women. We are corrupt men and women. And we know if you go and observe a court case, you have both sides, prosecutor and defendant, making fervent arguments for their side. And you look at the defendant and you look at somebody's fervently lying, you know, in most cases, but just as fervently as the one telling the truth. And when it is in our interest, we conceal those bits of ourselves that we don't want published. And then we reveal sometimes things that aren't even true of ourselves. So for us to judge on earth, it's difficult. As we brought Bob on as an elder for us elders, as we are making judgments and trying to lead a congregation and understand what's really happening in people's lives, there's difficulty there. How much more for the judge of all the earth? He has to judge every person, but it's not a problem for him because he is a God of knowledge. He doesn't need a forensics team to come in after the fact 
and help him understand now what exactly happened. He knows what happened. He saw it happen. He's a first-hand witness to everything that has happened. We try to take our sins and hide them down in dark corners. But Bob read for us today, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And even more frightening, in the New Testament, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He is a God of knowledge. There's nothing in your past There's nothing in your present. There's nothing even that you intend that hasn't yet developed into an action. There is nothing that the God of all the earth, this God of judgment, there's nothing he doesn't know entirely. He's observing it. He's hearing your thoughts. He's seeing your actions when no one else does. He's a God of knowledge. And because he's a judge then, by him, actions, that's all actions, are weighed Now, this is the same central point that's being made at the end of verse 8. But it's presented as a picture there. Look at the end of 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And you may at first wonder where that came from. (laughs) It doesn't seem to relate to everything else he's been saying. But actually it does. It's central to it. It's a picture. And what he is saying is, he's Presenting God to us as if he were a person building a house. And what do you do when you build a house? First you set the pillars, you lay the foundation, and then you build the house on top of it. And he says, so it is with this world. Not that our earth, an orb, is actually set on pillars, but God as a master workman in six days' time created this world. And he didn't create it a chaos. It was formless and void. He gave it form. And that includes natural laws, like we've said, gravity, thermodynamics, and all of the rest. God made this an orderly universe. That's why we can do science, because things happen in an orderly way. If you drop a pencil, then the pencil doesn't fly upward. It never will. It always drops downward. There is an order to this world. The point at the end of verse 8 is that that order extends beyond the physical world, And God has a moral order that he has attached to our physical world. Now, it is invisible and may be more easily denied by mankind, but Hannah's prayer says it is true. There will be rewards for good. There will be punishment for bad. Everything will receive a right recompense because that's the way God orders this world. Nobody gets away. Nobody gets away. Why does nobody get away? Why is there a moral order that is not just a strong moral order like some good country might have, but an absolute moral order? It is because God is a God of judgment and he guarantees that everyone will give an account for everything that happens. Psalm 94 speaks of those who, quote, kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, The Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. He sees. And he opens his books, which will be used in the day of judgment. His omniscient, his perfect memory. He forgets nothing. He opens the books and writes the wrong that has happened right there. Writes it in there. 
so to speak. It is recorded. It is inviolable. It cannot be removed or effaced. It is there. And this person will give an account for this deed that has happened. If he doesn't, God is ungodded. As a God of judgment, as a God of justice, everyone must give an account for every deed that happens or there is not absolute justice. And we know that there is absolute justice and there is therefore a moral order that cannot be violated forever. Temporarily, yes, but not forever. God delays his judgment. It's the only reason that anyone thinks there's not an absolute moral order in the world. But Paul speaks of that in Romans 2, referring to those who are not repentant before God. And he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Sin happens, evil happens, no immediate punishment but you're storing up wrath. There will be punishment. That's the point. You take the punishment due to that sin, God takes it and puts it on a pile. This sin, and he puts it on a pile. This sin, and he puts it on a pile. Evils that have been committed in the history of mankind, there are many that have still not been brought to light. There are serial killers who are still out there. They're suffering no consequences of the wrong they've done. Oh, but there is a pile. And what's going to happen to that pile? Is it going to go away? God is going to deal with that pile. It's not going to exist out into eternity. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a time of judgment. There's a moral order in this world because there's a God of judgment. Well, that is why we can say, all shall be well. It's not cliche. How, how do you know all shall be well? All shall be well. How do you know all shall... All manner of things shall be well because there's an absoluteness to the God of order who will make all wrong things right. It's not a coping mechanism. It's not American optimism. No, it's true that all will be well because there's a God of judgment who guarantees it. Your money in the bank, it's guaranteed by the FDIC. Your judgment is guaranteed by God. Now, if you are allied with this God, through Christ, like Hannah was, then you praise him for the absoluteness of his justice. Now, if you are not in Christ and you hear these things, you may be experiencing fear. This might not be a subject for praise for you like it is for Hannah because you think if God has seen everything I've done and if nothing goes under the rug and I must give an account for everything that I've done, I'm afraid. I'll be swept away. I'll be destroyed like this prayer talks about. That's a right response. That's a right response. Yes, yes you will. Unless you look at the end of this prayer, verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. That's the whole problem. We're included there and we will be judged. But notice what he says right at the end, what she says right at the end. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And we will see that, first of all, that king is David. She's prophesying about David, whom her son Samuel will anoint as king. But there's a son of David, and she's prophesying farther than the life of David. Who is God's king? Who is his anointed? The word anointed is translated and transliterated into Christ. She's talking about the Christ. 
God will give strength to his Christ. Because here we are, and if God's justice is perfect and our judgment is piling up, we need deliverance. We don't need deliverance from Penina. And we don't need ultimately this deliverance from the Philistines or the Amorites. David will grant that to the people. We don't need that. Where are the Philistines? They're not here. We need deliverance from this massive pile of our sins for which we have to give an account. And who's strong enough to lift that? You can't do it. I can't do it. No pope, no priest, no person on this earth can lift that. You can't touch one of those without violating God's perfect justice. You can't remove it. The blood of bulls and goats are not sufficient. Who's strong enough? Who has been by God given the strength, given the authority to remove that pile? He gives strength to his king. That is why this prayer ends with a forward look toward Christ as God's king, who is the only one who can deal with your pile of consequences, moral consequences, in a way that satisfies the moral order which God has built into the world. And Christ does that on the cross because on the cross he proves God a God of love, but also a God of judgment. If God was just a God of love, he just forgets your sin. But because he's a God of judgment, he must judge that pile of sins. So Christ, with his strength, takes it and puts it on his own head and goes to the cross with your sins and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three hours of darkness. It is the penalty that that pile deserves. And it is really, truly, genuinely punished. Do you see how that preserves the moral order of the universe while at the same time clearing you of receiving the eternal consequences of your sin? Your wrongs are still punished. There is still a perfect record kept of them. They are dealt with. They are not ignored. God is just. But if this King, this Christ, has taken your sins... And you through faith in him are united to him and your sins are given to him. Then God is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I would encourage you to make sure that your faith is in this king. Really, if you want to escape God's judgment, which is declared all throughout this prayer, if you would rather have Hannah's happy heart in the face of God's judgment than to be those enemies who are destroyed... You have to, in a sense, treat God like a hurricane. That hurricane is coming. Here comes God's wrath. You can't run from it. You can't escape it. It will rip you to pieces. There's only one place near that hurricane where there is any safety. And oddly enough, it's right in the eye of the storm. It's right at the center of the hurricane. There is this odd calmness. And if you are there, you are safe. And likewise, with God's justice, you can't run from him. He's a God of knowledge. Where will you go? He sees in the darkness as if it's the day. You can only run to him, to the eye of the storm, and he will be your refuge. He was Hannah's salvation through the coming king, and he will be your salvation and deliverance. If you want your accounts settled with God, let him settle them, which he has done through Christ. So we are dealing here with the God of judgment, and that is where Hannah begins, just a praise of God that he is a God of judgment. But that leads us to the next part of this prayer and of our sermon, which is now the specific judgments that God gives. So we move from the God of judgment now to the judgment of God. This forms the bulk of the prayer. If you begin here, verses 4 and 5, the bows of the mighty are broken. 
but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. What we have here are reversals, great reversals. The first is last, and the last is first. It's the same that Jesus taught. God's judgment is a matter of reversals because this is a corrupt world. People get away with things here. The righteous are not always rewarded. The wicked are not always punished. But the point of Hannah's prayer is when we come to the judgments of God, which take place in part in this life, because sometimes God does punish the wicked in this life. Sometimes he does bless the righteous in this life and reward them, but only in part. The judgment of God we're talking about now has an ultimate fulfillment on the day of the Lord, prophesied by the prophets and their word is inviolable. There will be a day of the Lord. It is coming. And then there will be absolute justice reckoned. That's what's being discussed here. But in that day, partly now, but especially in that day, God's judgment happens in reversals. So there is both a negative judgment. What we think of when we hear the term judgment is negative negative judgment, punishing the wicked. But there is also a positive judgment in this prayer, what we would call salvation. So you have the bows of the mighty, and these are presumably evil mighty people who have their bows pulled back, aimed at the hearts of the godly and the innocent, those who are God's chosen people. It's aimed. And what happens? A reversal. This is a position of strength right here. And then the bows are shattered. And really the bow bearers are shattered as well. They were strong and now they are weak. That is the reversal that takes place. And on the other hand, the feeble who are there cowering before the mighty, the proud, and the evil, the feeble whom we are to assume here are God's people, are righteous. The feeble, they are the ones who bind on strength. When you get to the end here of verse 5, you find finally Hannah is not talking just generally, but about her own situation. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. We'll see down in verse 21 that Hannah actually ends up having six children, not seven. This is poetic. Seven to the Hebrew mind is the idea of fullness. So here you have the barren Hannah herself, grievously provoked but trusting in the Lord and God delivers her. Now she has children in Panina. How does she end up? We don't hear more of her story, but she's forlorn. Now we have to assume that God's actions of judgment in verses 4 and 5, you might notice there, it never actually mentions God. (laughs) That's a surprising thing in verses 4 and 5. It doesn't mention God. Where is he? Well, he's the God of judgment. He's doing these judgments. It's made explicit starting in verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And the interesting thing in this with the judgments of God is that I don't think any of us really have a qualm with the positive judgments of God. If he wants to lift up and exalt and make alive and make rich, we say, praise God for that. But notice that in this prayer, 
Hannah is praising God not only for one half of the equation, but also for the other. The judgments of God cut both ways, and Hannah praises God for both ways it cuts. Both in blessing those who trust him, but also in the judgment that falls on them who do not. You're not going to hear a popular Christian song on Christian radio today talking about the negative half of the equation. The Lord kills. He brings down to Sheol. He makes poor and he brings low. Now, I don't think that we ought to lean into that part of God's judgment and primarily emphasize it. I don't think Hannah primarily emphasizes God's negative judgment. You see that because in verse 1, she's really rejoicing in the Lord's salvation. And then you see in verse 8 that expansion is about positive. He lifts them up from the ash heap. So when he elaborates on what he's talking about, he talks about, she talks about the positive judgment of God. There's an unhealthy turn of mind where some people delight too much in the negative judgment of God. So we're not arguing for that. But at the same time, how will you read Psalm 139? Or how will you read Hannah's prayer and share in her delight in God if you feel just apologetic about God's negative judgments? God punishes the wicked. There is a hell. There is a judgment to come. If you only feel apologetic about that, you feel kind of bad or embarrassed about that, that's not how Hannah feels. At the end of the day, the truth is that God matters more than any of us, than any person. And that is not to devalue mankind. We're made in His image. But God matters so much that even His judgments which destroy those who resist Him, He ought to be praised for. It's all the way through Scripture. It's unusual in our context. We don't think that way. But let me give you a clear passage from Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, God's glory in negative judgment, in order, so I do think the emphasis is here, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. So whichever way the reversal happens in God's judgment, reversal up, reversal down, God ought still to be praised. There is a glory that ought to be given to God in either direction. According to God's promise, Scripture says, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But we know that that earth and that heavens will not happen until both the positive and negative judgment of God falls upon this universe. And so we praise God that it's true. Share the gospel with your neighbors, with those who are lost. Plead for their salvation because God's judgment is absolute. It is certain and it is coming. And when they trust in Christ, rejoice in their deliverance, that God has saved them. Those who refuse to trust in Christ, God will still get glory. He's not thinking, oh no, you're ruining all my plans. He will still get glory. That's why Hannah can praise him in either directions. There is a God of judgment. There will be one day absolutely a judgment of God, a day of the Lord. So let every person run to the eye of the storm before the storm destroys you and there find calm and peace. 
If you have run to the eye of the storm and you have placed your faith in Christ the King and He has taken that pile upon Himself and you are completely cleared of all guilt and there is no wrath of God that remains for you, then the parts of this prayer that are for you are all the positives. God will lift you up. Are you poor? God will make you rich in the life to come. Remember what Abraham said, holding Lazarus there in his bosom. Poor Lazarus who had suffered so horribly in this life. Remember what Abraham said when judgment fell and he was speaking now to the rich man outside of whose house Lazarus lived. And Abraham said to the rich man, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now, that's the judgment, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. There is a great reversal that is coming. That is why don't look at your life right now, at its circumstances, at your income, at the hard things that happen and try to make an assessment of does God love me or not love me now. God has told you that there will be bad circumstances here, but there's a great reversal that is coming. The world cannot receive you. The world hates you. The world will prosper in this life in most cases. But don't look at that. There is a great reversal that is coming because there is a God of judgment and there will be a judgment of God. And if you've run to Christ and found your safety in Him, then no matter what your life looks like, no matter what Satan whispers to you about, oh, your life is terrible, God has abandoned you and forsaken you, no matter what, you say this, no, no, no. All shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of thing shall be well. <laughs>